You're listening to Sirens, a true crime podcast brought to you by the Sirens Network. This podcast contains explicit content, so listener discretion is advised. The opinions expressed on this podcast are solely the views of the hosts and do not reflect the views of affiliates, associates, or sponsors of this podcast. A break from our regular programming for this special episode, Raven's Reviews. Welcome to another episode of Raven's Reviews on the Sirens Podcast, where I have today a New York Times best-selling author who writes crime thrillers, most notably the Temperance Brennan novels, which of course later became the TV show Bones. And she's also a world-renowned forensic anthropologist and academic, so... If you'll please welcome with me today, Kathy Rikes. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you so much for having me on. So tell me a little bit about you, for starters, your background. Um, you're from Chicago, right? I was born there. Um, I haven't lived there in forever. I live in North Carolina now, but yes, I was born there. And did you always know that you wanted to get into forensic anthropology? Absolutely not. I had never heard of forensic anthropology. I did my doctoral uh, education in bioarchaeology, and I planned to spend my career looking at ancient skeletons. But because I was the bone of the university, uh, cops started coming to me for help when they had cases of compromised bodies, mainly just bones back in those days. But that's how I started doing um, the forensic work. I really liked how relevant it was that you could really impact someone's life when you identify a missing family member or testify in court. I really liked that. Um, so I retrained and sat for my board exams and I've been doing forensics ever since. So can you tell us, because I had never heard, at least until I got into this true crime business, um, I had never heard of a forensic anthropologist. So can you tell us, just kind of in layman's terms, what that is? We are specialists in the human skeleton, which is also true of a bioarchaeologist. But we also have other... um, expertise that are relevant to coroners, medical examiners. Um, I consult to the military. Um, Forensic anthropologists work in the realm of human rights work, recovering individuals from mass graves, for example. We also work in the realm of um, disasters, where you have mass fatalities and helping recover and then identify people from mass disasters. So we have expertise beyond just knowing bones. We know how from bones to determine if an individual, the sex of an individual, their age, their ancestry, their background, um, to pick out things in their skeletons about their past medical histories, injuries, trauma, etc. So that can help in identification. But we're also very good in, and what you're doing in forensic anthropology, unlike archaeology, where you're dealing with populations, you're identifying a specific individual in forensic anthropology, putting a name on a specific set of remains. Or the other thing we address is cause of death, manner of death. Was it a homicide, a suicide? Was it accidental? Was it natural? And 
you know, saying as much as we can about if it was a sharp instrument trauma, what kind of instrument might have caused it, that sort of thing. So we address both cause and manner of death and identification. Sometimes the question might be how long has the person been dead? Sometimes the question might also involve what was done to the body after death. But those are the kinds of things that an archaeologist wouldn't wouldn't be interested in. And you are one of 100 forensic anthropologists that's certified by the American Board of Forensic Anthropology. What does that even mean? Well, it's a rigorous process. We, because we testify in court, and because forensics became very popular all of a sudden, uh, maybe in the 90s, I'm thinking, a lot of people started hanging out their shingle and saying, oh, I'm a forensic this, or I'm a forensic psychologist, or I'm a forensic anthropologist. So how do you sort out, how does a judge in a trial sort out who's a legitimate expert? So most of the forensic fields, forensic dentistry, forensic anthropology, forensic chemistry, etc., have a process whereby you have to submit your candidacy, be qualified, and then sit for an exam, and then you are certified. You can put you know, diplomate American Board of Forensic Anthropology behind your name. Wow. At what point would someone call in a forensic anthropologist? Yeah, it could be most of us work, many of us, let me say, work at universities or museums and consult in forensics on the side. Some of us work full time for a state chief medical examiner or, you know, police departments or whatever. They would call us in when a normal autopsy won't do the job, either because the body is burned or mutilated or mummified or decomposed or dismembered, or maybe it's just bones. And they would need our help in determining maybe who it is or what happened to that person. Uh, I am from Ada, Oklahoma, and we have a famous case from there. Um, But I kind of wanted to ask you, um, Denise Haraway, her body was found after a year after she had gone missing and she was found out in the woods. Um, And of course, she was pretty much just remains, skeletal remains. Um, And so I kind of wanted to know, would there ever be a reason why you wouldn't call in a forensic anthropologist because that wasn't done here. Yeah, sometimes pathologists think they can do bones um, <laughs> uh, and they're excellent at doing regular autopsies where you make a Y incision and you, 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 know, you have the brain and the organs and the tissue, but they don't usually know the skeleton that well. Some of them will take you know, a one week course or something and then they think they can do all of the forensic anthropology. I have no idea the case you're talking about or why they didn't call in a forensic anthropologist, it's a mistake not to get the proper expertise, just as it would be a mistake to have an anthropologist do a pathologist's autopsy. It's a mistake to go the other way. So with that case, um, this girl had gone missing. um, And when she went missing, she was three months pregnant. Of course, they never found the child. So I was wondering... Is there a way that you can tell from the bones, if it's just bones remains like that, if the woman has given birth? Opinions are split on that. Okay. Um, If a woman has given multiple times given birth, you may see signs in in her pelvic bones, in the inner surface of the front of of her pelvis. Um, And also, if a woman is pregnant, you, you may find the little tiny fetal bones as well. Now, if she's been in the wood, and they're very fragile, they're very small, obviously, but and if she's been out in the elements 
for over a year, those might not have survived. So you guys also do facial reconstruction with, um, what are they called, tissue depth markers, right? Yeah, some anthropologists do that. Um, and tissue depth markers where you actually put clay on the skull, that's kind of obsolete. Um, it's now largely done by computer-generated uh, models where you've got a database of, of different features, eyes and noses and mouths and things, and you project your your skull uh, into your computer and then you lay the, the, the features onto it. And it's really a last ditch effort. Um, you've got uh, you've got to have a skull to be able to do it. You've got to have a complete skull with, with the jawbone as well. You know, and if nothing else is working, uh, there's no harm in doing, well, there could be harm if you do it incorrectly, but in creating an image and putting it out there to the public and saying, does anyone, you know, recognize this? But that's really the, the only context in which you would, you would use it. What's the protocol when you take on a new case? Where do you get it from and where do you start? Well, as I've said, it can come from a number of different sources and you can be brought in at a number of different <laughs> points in the investigation. It, it, you know, I did consults for the military. I've done consults for the United Nations. Um, I've been invited to go along on uh, excavations to Guatemala, for example, to exhume individuals in a mass grave. I've been brought in by the United Nations much later in the case to consult. Uh, during the trial, during the uh, Tribunal for Genocide in Rwanda. And I didn't actually do the on-the-ground work, but I, I consulted about the work that was done. So I came in at that point quite late in, in the process. You could be brought in by um, an attorney on either side, either the prosecution or the defense, to take a look at. And, and often in trials, you'll have an anthropologist testifying for one side and a different one for the other side. So you can come into the case uh, at a lot of different points. Um, you know, if you go right from the beginning, remains have been found, you know, along a riverbank or out in the woods or whatever, and the police team comes and takes me out there. That would be from start through the examination to finish and then testimony in court. So it's variable, I guess. When <laughs> I kind of wanted to mention, you know, I think sometimes you get out there and these aren't always crime victims, right? That is absolutely correct. Skeletal remains might be found, I don't know, in, in the woods, in, a, in an abandoned house. And it just turns out to be, you know, a, a vagrant who died and wasn't discovered for a year or so. There's no criminal activity necessarily involved. That would be just an example of a non-criminal case. Right. Are you, do you kind of spend half of your time in the field and half of your time in the lab? Like, how, how does that work? Again, it's different for each case. Um, there was a time when I would go out to the actual recovery site. Uh, it's not my favorite activity. <laughs> um but often the bones would be recovered by, and I don't go off like my character, like Temperance Brennan, yeah. and cover bodies on my own. I always go with an official police team. But, um, and I spent years giving workshops in, in training FBI agents or whoever how to do it properly. So, um, in those, it, you know, if the remains have been recovered already, they're just brought to the morgue. They're brought to the coroner or the medical examiner by law, whichever that jurisdiction has. And then I might enter the case at that point, but it would probably be at, at the morgue. 
I know that this is probably a super long process, and I'm not going to ask you to tell every bit of it, but where do you start in the identification process? I start by laying everything out. I put the, the bone. Let's say we're working on a bones case. I put all the bones in anatomical order on the autopsy table, and then I go through it all, and I see what's there and what's missing. I do a skeletal inventory. Then I usually will do sex, determine if it's male or female, and that I focus largely on the skull and the pelvis, assuming I have them. Then I do an age determination. Um, then I'll, I'll calculate height. Um, I'll do ancestry, and for that you really need the skull. And I just go through all of those, creating what I call the biological profile. If we have a completely unknown person, I will then give that profile to the investigating officer. They, he or she, will go through missing persons lists and see if anybody matches that profile. Then, because anthropologists don't do positive IDs, rarely. Those are done with dental records or DNA. But you can't use dental records or DNA in a vacuum. You have to have a name. You have to know whose dentist to go to right. or whose family to go to for a comparative DNA sample. So with a, with a complete unknown, um, I'll give the biological profile to the cop. They will then pull, you know, okay, we think it could be John Doe. And then we can go get dental records or whatever. The other type case would be a presumptive ID. Um, these bones were found, or this decomposing body, or whatever, was found in the woods. It's in the right place, the right time. We think it's probably this person. So that's a slightly different different approach than that would be taken. And you do always, um, even though it may turn out to be an accidental death or a, even a natural death or or something, you do still look for. Um, trauma and stuff like that to the body, right? Well, you look for anything you can see is, is the only way to answer that. You, you say there was a house fire and we know that, you know, Mary, Mary Doe lived in the house and we think this is Mary Doe because the bones were found in her bed, in her bedroom. Right. You still want to be sure because what if someone murdered Mary Doe and put somebody else in her bed, in her bedroom? Right. So you always want to uh, not go on assumptions. Do you mostly know cause of death most of the time, or is it sometimes hard to determine? It can be difficult, and it can be impossible from the bones in certain cases. For example, poisoning. Well, unless it's long-term arsenic poisoning, or something, that's not going to show up in the bones. Right. If a person stabbed in the gut and no bone was nicked or scratched or impacted, that's not going to show up in the skeleton. So sometimes, but on the other hand, if they're hit over the head with a baseball bat, it's pretty easy to see, right. you know, blunt trauma. Or if, you know, their throat was slashed, you're probably going to see that on some certain bones in, in that part of the body. It just depends. <laughs> <laughs> you worked a serial murderer case, and I believe that you kind of tied that into one of your books. Um, but I was wondering when you work something like that and you have just the bodies, is it hard to connect the dots between those victims or is it kind of obvious that it was, it was this guy? Well, it'll depend. Um, if they've got a, a very distinct signature and many serial killers do, um, you might pick that up in the different in the different victims. Um, the serial murder case that I worked on, uh, that you're, the one you're referring to, was in Montreal. And um, 
he was arrested for having killed a woman and she was found right after he killed her. So I wasn't involved in that. That was a regular autopsy. But he admitted to having killed another woman two years earlier, cut her up and buried her in five different locations. So that was the case that I was involved in. So that was a case of presumptive ID. We thought it was a particular person. So that was uh, determined by dental records. But what I was looking at specifically was the pattern of the dismemberment because he, whoever had done it had gone about it in a very unique way. So wow. each case is you know, going to have a different element to it. What would you tell anyone who wants to get into the field? Um, well, you, you can do it. Um, the, those who are very dedicated and very good at it um, will, in fact, find, find work in the field. There are limited jobs. There aren't a whole lot. You've got 50 states. You might have 50 chief medical examiners. But get good grades as an undergraduate and get into a, a graduate program. I would suggest getting into a program that has a, a, a professor who is board certified and is doing the work because they network you in. They network their graduate students in. You, to be a serious player, you have to get a PhD. And then I think it's three years post PhD, you can sit for your board examination. So it's a long haul, but if you're serious about it and apply yourself and are dedicated to it, you go for it. Well, then on the other side of that, there's also the psychological, what are you getting yourself into thing as well? What advice would you have on that front? Well, if you... Go to graduate school and you, hopefully, your mentor, your professor would um, include you in body recoveries, in analyses, perhaps in you, you'd attend autopsies and you'd learn if, if you have the psychological makeup to be doing that kind of work. I'm not going to give anything away, but there is something in uh, Cold Cold Bones that I was wondering if you could actually legitimately do which I assume you can but it just kind of blew my mind um determining the difference in the mechanism of strangulation can you actually do that um there are some clues to that particularly in what I'm looking at in the in Coco Bones uh, which is takes my readers back to earlier books because what Tempe realizes in this book is somebody is targeting her and mimicking copycatting some of her earlier cases, one of which was a hanging case. Right. So I looked into knots. You, you learn a bit about knots and how the kind of knot is. And this has statistically been studied. The databases are pretty small right now. But um, what type of knot is found in a homicide where someone's been killed and then just strung up versus a true suicide? Right. And there are differences in, in, in that. So that's, that's what I look at a bit in, this, in the book. You actually teach this stuff, right? I did for many years. Um, I'm retired from the university. Um, so I did teach it both at university and also to um, actual law enforcement personnel. Yeah, I had read that you taught um, the FBI 
for a while, how to detect and recover human remains. Yeah, they used to have a, I don't think they do it anymore. They used to have a, a workshop and agents, special agents would come in from all over the country. And we, a team of us, there would be a forensic dentist and a couple of forensic anthropologists and a pathologist. And maybe there was an archeologist, I can't remember. It was a multidisciplinary approach to teach them how to properly recover human remains. You don't just go out and start digging and throw stuff in a bag, which is a popular police approach. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's pretty important. I mean, it's important stuff. So, you know, you're kind of, you're changing the protocols, and I love that. Now, having worked with um, all of these people, police departments and all of these colleagues, do you think it makes it easier to write about them um, and, and people like them in your books? Well, sure. I have access to lots of firsthand information. I spent time at crime scenes and death scenes and in the autopsy room and in forensic lab. And um, in Montreal, where I worked for many years, um, it was a combined medical, legal and crime lab. So everybody was there, the fire and arson people and the hair and fiber people and, you know, the DNA people, everybody was there. So if I needed help on something, I could just walk across the corridor and and, um, have them walk me step by step through bite mark analysis or whatever it was I I needed answers about. So when did you think, you know what, I should write books about this? Well, a couple of things came to, I had a colleague, uh, Bill Maples, who wrote a book called Dead Men Do Tell Tales. And that came out, uh, I'm going to say in the early 90s. And it was a collection of true cases he'd worked on. It was nonfiction. But it sold pretty well, and and, um, I read it and liked it, and I guess that was the beginning of the idea. And then I made full professor at the university, so I was free to try whatever I wanted after that. And I had also just worked on this serial murder case that had some of these interesting elements of dismemberment in it. So those came together in the mid-90s, and I thought, well, I'm going to give it a try. And that's when I wrote uh, Deja Dead, the first book. Were you surprised at all when Deja Dead became a number one bestseller? Yes, yes. It made the top 10 of the New York Times list. I don't think it made number one. But I was thrilled that it, that it made the list at all. Um, sure, when you're writing, a, you're a complete unknown. I've never written fiction. Um, I don't really know what I'm doing. I don't have an agent. I don't have a publisher. Um, yeah, when your book sells and makes it right on to the New York Times. It made it number one on the London Times, though, and that's a surprise. How did people know? What made you decide that you wanted to go with a, a sort of fiction instead of just straight up writing about the cases that you've worked? People were doing that, not a lot, but a few after Bill. I think there were a couple of other people that did that. Um I like reading fiction, and I just thought it would be fun to write fiction, and I just tried to write the kind of book I like to read. Yeah, you can take liberties where you couldn't, you know, in real life. And also there are legal issues. I I don't know what they are with writing about actual cases, so I just thought fiction would be a better approach for me. And you have now over 20 novels in the Temperance Brennan saga so far, which is, that's crazy. Did you ever think that you would get to 20 plus? No. When you're writing your first book, you just think, you know, maybe, maybe some publisher will 
want it and then maybe some readers out there will actually buy it and like it yeah i don't think i was thinking i was creating the character to be a series a serial character but um i was just hoping to maybe get published and you do write a few you have a few books with your son as well right the virals series he and i did the viral series it's a young adult series it's temperance brennan's 14 year old great niece tori brennan and her friends who are 14 15 16 years old and they use that level uh, middle school high school level science to solve mysteries and cases and problems <laughs> so these are that's definitely one that i could recommend to the younger readers Yes, and, and adults, a lot of adults that read young adult. I didn't realize that when we wrote it, but those stories are just as complex. They're big, thick books. Kids want their money's worth. The stories are just as complicated and multi-layered. What's different is the dialogue, obviously. They don't, 14-year-old kids don't talk like 50-year-old homicide detectives. Right. Social concerns are different as well. But otherwise, the stories are just as, just as complicated. I have not read any of the virals yet. I'm going to have to get on it because <laughs> I do. I love the Tempe series so far. I love it. So anything that you write in Tempe from now on, I'm on it. I'm working on number 22. So. Oh my goodness. You're so busy. What's your writing process? Can I ask you that? Like, do you have to be at home? Do you have to have white noise on? Like, what's the whole process there? not good at writing in train stations or you know on airplanes I can edit on airplanes but um, so I do have to be in my office I have two offices one I, I'm at, currently at my beach house near Charleston South Carolina so I can write in that office or in my office at home in Charlotte North Carolina but I do have to have it quiet and be in my office and have my computer I try to get at it in the morning um, not crazy early um, but you know by 8 8 30. And then I stay, I write until I break for lunch around, I don't know, one thirty, two o'clock, something like that. And you write every single day? I write pretty much every single day that I'm home and free, not on tour or not traveling. Or So I know that a lot of this stuff you know, but, uh, you know, as you were saying, some, some things you have to, you know, walk over and ask somebody else. So how much research goes into a, a Tempe novel? Constant research. As I'm writing, I have to be on Wi-Fi because as I'm writing, I'm constantly going out and checking every single little fact that I create. What does I was just writing uh, the book 22, The Bone Hacker, will take place in the Turks and Caicos Islands, but I've got a character from Grand Cayman. Driver's license plays a role in it. So what does a Grand Cayman driver's license look like? Ooh, you know, so I'll go out on, on the internets and uh, pull up an image of it. <laughs> In the driver's life. So I'm constantly researching big things and little things. At what point did Tempe become Bones on TV? And what were your initial thoughts on her getting her own show? Well, I was very excited um, and I thoroughly enjoyed the experience. I'm not one of these authors who will say they you know, took my art and destroyed it. Um, I was very involved in the process. I wrote episodes for the show. I was a producer for the show. So I think we did a great job. That's why we lasted 12 seasons, which is unheard of. So I, I, it was a good experience for me. I will say I'm, I am only like five or six episodes into Bones. So that came definitely after the books for me. So it's 
it's different. I'll say that. Well, you have 240 some episodes left. Then. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I have a lot of work to do. <laughs> and you were actually in one of those episodes, weren't you? Yeah, season two I was. My Our showrunner, Hart Hansen, talked me into doing that. And what was it, it was like fun. to kind of just be in your own world for a minute that you created? Well, I was very reluctant. I'm not an on-screen kind of person, but he pointed out that David Duchovny would be directing that episode. So I said, yeah, I'm there. I'll do it. <laughs> so it was fun. It was a fun episode. So let's talk about your latest Tempe novel, Cold Cold Bones, which again, I absolutely loved. Um, tell us a little bit about what she's up to in this book. Well, it's, as I said, it revisits some of the earlier books. Um, she, her daughter Katie has just gotten out of the military after eight years and two deployments to the Middle East. So she's very happy about that. She's helping Katie unpack in her new home in Charlotte, which she's very happy that Katie has made that choice. And they go back to Tempe's house and they find a box on her back porch. And in the box is a human eyeball. In fact, the opening line to this book is one of my all-time favorites. It's the opening line is, it began with an eyeball. Not long after, so, and then they find etched on the eyeball, they find uh, GPS coordinates. So of course our intrepid heroine has to follow those to figure out what they're all about. She goes, they lead her to a Benedictine monastery where she, I'm just gonna say she makes another grisly discovery. And then not long after that, her boss, the medical examiner, sends her out to collect a body in a state park. It's a mummified corpse hanging from a tree. And I've had a number of cases like that. But something begins to bother her and she eventually realizes <clears throat> that these cases seem completely random and unrelated, but they're not unrelated. They are actually someone targeting her by copycatting her old cases. So she has to figure out who this is and why they're doing it and shut them down. If you look at them at surface level, they're totally unrelated. Like you have to really, she does some digging to figure this out. And I was wondering if you had ever dealt with a, a copycat of any sort. Mm, I don't think so. No, not that I know of. So this is new and wonderful territory. Yeah, I, th I thought my return readers would get a kick out of one of the things thriller readers do is they try to so solve the mystery as they're reading the book before the author tells you the solution at the end. So they could not only have that experience trying to solve that puzzle, they could also try to figure out which of the earlier books each of these cases is drawing on. So I thought my return readers would get a kick out of that. And also I thought it would be a way to let new readers know what, what the books are about, what's going on a little bit, what's going on in the series prior to Cold Cold Bones. I will say that I am a newer reader. I started with Cold Cold Bones. Oh. It makes you want to know for sure. It makes you want to go back and go, okay, I got to know what was going on. I got to figure out, you know, where this case pertains to here. And so now I'm super excited that I have like 20 novels I get to read now, you know. I, but yeah, you don't need to um, have read each one of these to get to here at all. And I loved I love that. I said, then I did my job. That's good. You did. You absolutely did. And I can definitely tell for returning readers how exciting that that would be to go, oh, I remember that one from, yeah. you know. 
you know, I'm kind of wondering, you know, has there ever been a, a point in which you have just one piece of someone that you have to figure out who it is, where it came from? We had a, yeah, we've had that. We had a case in Montreal. Um, there, a beloved figure is a, a priest, a, a, what do you call a monk, yeah, who died decades and decades ago. And his heart was kept in the cathedral there. And someone stole it. What? Freron. Yes, yes. And then they must have felt guilty because they left it on the steps of the medical legal lab. And so this heart came, or they left it somewhere. Anyway, it came to our lab and we had this heart in a jar and we had to, not an anthropology case, but they had to figure out, you know, is this the real, the real one? Wow. On this place. <laughs> I can't even imagine where you would start with that because, oh, that, that would have been a, a crazy one. That one was probably pre- crazy. You have a character in Cold Cold Bones who is named Skinny. And this is just for me to know. <laughs> but did does this have anything to do with your kitty cat? You know, I don't remember which came first. If it was Skinny Slidell or Skinny My Cat. I, I, I have to sort that out in my mind. I didn't name one for the other, but they both ended up named Skinny. I think Skinny Slidell may have come first. I mean, it's just the skinniest cat I'd ever seen. (laughs) What traits do you think that you have in common and differences that you have from Tempe? She's um, a bit more impetuous than I am in the earlier books. She takes more risks than I do. She does get both on screen and in the books, get much more involved with the investigation end of cases than is realistic than I do. I will go to a scene, maybe, and then work in the lab, but I don't go with the detectives questioning witnesses and that sort of thing. Um, I think we have the same sense of humor. She has a bit of a biting sense of humor, a bit of a sarcastic sense of humor. What advice would you have for maybe like aspiring writers who want to kind of get into writing crime thrillers? Right. Any opportunity that you have, whether it's one hour a day or one day a week or whatever, write, sit down and write and don't let yourself say, well, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not inspired, I'm not motivated, just do it, just write. Also, I would say join writing groups um, where you can motivate each other and critique each other. I guess those would be my only two pieces of advice. I cannot wait to see what's in store. Well, book 22, The Bone Hacker, is scheduled to be out the summer of 2023. Awesome. I cannot wait. And if you would like to jump on the Temperance Brennan train, you can do that. Get any of the books at the bookstores near you. You can also go to our website at thesirenspodcast.com slash author alley. Learn more about Kathy and also go to kathyrags.com. Thank you again so much, Kathy, for being here today. Thank you. And thank you listeners for tuning in again. Catch us next time on The Sirens Podcast. Thanks for listening to this episode of Raven's Reviews. Catch more next time on The Sirens Podcast. Do we have an outro? That's our outro, isn't it?